The following message is by Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. I began this series by asking this question uh, What is the gospel? What is the gospel? And that word gospel, as I said in that first message in the series, literally means good news. But again, uh, what exactly is the content of this good news proclaimed in the Bible? And I think many of us, as I said in that first message, would answer that question along the lines of these four spiritual laws that begins with these famous words, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And I would wholeheartedly affirm this truth. God does love us, and God does have a wonderful plan for our lives. But when we actually look technically at the occurrences of this literal word gospel in the Bible, it doesn't quite lay it out like this to us. The gospel, as it is typically presented in our day, seems to tell a story in which we're the main character. Everything sort of flows around us. Our condition, our sin problem, our need of salvation. And these are, again, very important and significant realities. But the gospel as presented by the Bible, really actually, you can make a strong argument, doesn't directly involve us, but we are secondary to what the actual good news is. Instead, the story centers almost entirely around Jesus himself. Jesus, when he talked about this gospel, talked about the arrival of the kingdom of God. Mark 1, 14 to 15. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time was fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel, in this good news. And so when you look at this, it's clear that Jesus is equating the good news with the coming of the kingdom of God. And so by implication, if there is a kingdom, then there must be a king who reigns on the throne of that kingdom. And this is exactly what happened after Jesus was crucified on the cross and was raised again from the dead three days later. In the early presentations of this gospel message, in the earliest sermons preached by the apostles, the climax of the story of the gospel is the exaltation of Jesus, seated on his throne at the right hand of God the Father. Acts chapter 2, 32 to 33, Peter's sermon in Jerusalem. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God. And having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. So in essence, the good news of the gospel is that there is a king who reigns over his creation and his name is Jesus. He won the victory over sin and death for us through that resurrection. And now he is enthroned as king over his kingdom. And so the only proper response is a surrendered life of giving ourselves and surrender to that king who reigns over his creation and now personally in our lives. 
I mentioned in that first message that all these passages about exalting Jesus that says, now that Jesus was raised from the dead, he is now exalted. He is seated on his throne. And it always confused me. You know, like, if Jesus is the second person of the Trinity, if Jesus is God, then how do you become a more exalted being than God himself? It just seemed nonsensical to me. I mean, God is the most highest exalted being you can imagine. And so why is so much being made of of Jesus being exalted after his resurrection? Well, I think the point is not that there was anything lacking in Jesus as a person, as a being. The lacking was actually with us. And so why it makes so much of the exaltation of Jesus seated on the throne is that it's not saying that somehow Jesus was lesser before he died and now he is greater. But the message is that his kingdom was in a state of rebellion. The problem was us. There were no subjects to rule because all of us had rebelled against God because of our sin. We have all turned away from God. We had all become his enemies. And so when Jesus died on the cross and he rose again, he opened a way for the kingdom to move forward because now souls like you and I could give our lives to Jesus and follow him. That is why now he is exalted on his throne. In other words, our natural bent, unless God works in us first, is that we don't desire God. We don't want the things that he wants for us. In fact, we don't want anything to do with him. That is our natural state, unless there is grace at work in us. Isaiah 53, verse 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. But through his death and resurrection, Jesus ransomed us from the guilt of that sin and that rebellion. And he restores us so that now we can live for the purpose for which we were created. Acts chapter 3, verse 19 to 21 says, Repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. In other words, God's purpose in salvation is so much more than simply trying to take people who are headed to hell and bring them to heaven. The purpose of God in salvation is nothing short of restoring a fallen creation to what it was originally intended to be. To bring us back to himself and that fullness of that restoration, as it says even here in Acts 3, 19-21, will not happen until... Jesus comes again, but we can experience a foretaste of what that restoration looks like even today, even presently, as we bend our knee to Jesus and surrender our lives to him and his authority. And I want to flesh that out a bit in this final message entitled, In His Image, as to what that restoration looks like. Because in the creation account in Genesis, the Bible begins with this truth that all of us as human beings are made in the image of God. 
Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 to 28 says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. You know, this becomes one of the great questions that we ask is, what does it mean for human beings to be made in the image of God? And our focus often tends to be, what are the qualities essential to a human being? You know, especially when you compare it to animals. That makes us different. And so people have often talked about things like the fact that human beings have the ability of language and speech, or that we have creative powers, or that we have the ability of imagination. Um, there's a lot of things that we can focus on, the ability to reason and to think. But when we actually look at this passage, the focus that we are made in the image of God isn't so much in any quality that we exhibit as human beings. The focus is more functional. Because twice in this passage, it relates the idea that we are made in the image of God with the calling that we have by God to rule over his creation. As it says, to have dominion over everything on this earth. In other words, what I'm saying is this. Being made in the image of God means that we are called to represent God's authority over his creation through our own authority. In other words, God wants to express his rule over his world in every sphere of life through us, amazingly. Through how we choose to interact with the world around us. What the Bible tells us, though, is that when sin entered, it turned that design of God completely upside down on its head. So that, speaking of the entire human race, Paul would write in Romans 1, verse 21 to 23 and verse 25, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. In other words, what Paul is telling us is that rather than seeing God's creation as good gifts to us so that by utilizing those things we can use all of creation for the glory of God, We've instead chased after these material things and made them to be gods themselves. Idols, as the Bible would say. And we began to worship these material things rather than leveraging it for God's agenda. And so what I'm saying to you this morning is this, that when we become believers in Jesus Christ, one of the great restoring works of God is that he enables us to recapture a sense of purpose in our life, of how God wants to use me to affect his agenda in the world around me. In other words, the question that should be 
bearing down on the heart of every believer all the time is this. What does God want in this situation? What does he want? What is his goal here? What is his agenda? What is it that he desires to accomplish in this situation? And I want to challenge you that I think even though we may be Christian, I don't know how often we are actually asking this question. I think it's very possible to claim to be a follower of Jesus, but still to be continually consumed by our own agenda, our constant searching of the angles of what we want out of any given situation that we face. But part of the restoration of what the work of God in our lives is, is to recapture the sense of purpose. What does God want in this situation, in my family, in my marriage, in this friendship, in my career? What does God want to do with my resources, my money? You know, a couple weeks ago, we had a parenting seminar on a Saturday, and uh, kind of unpack that in a practical way as to what that looks like parenting. I think family stands out as one of those areas where we could see it as a great gift of God or it could be a great idolatry that actually pulls us away from God as we worship our family. We worship our, 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 the sanctity of that, that home life that we have. And so you, even as you're watching your kids going through, let's say your kid gets bullied at school. Let's say your kid is tanking in grades and you're having parent-teacher conferences where he says your kid doesn't have attention. And it raises these questions. How do you react in a situation like that? You know, there's so many ways that we can deal with that. You can, you know, sign your kid up for karate lessons. Say, next time that boy lays a hand on you, you give him a good kick, you know, to his groin area. And he'll never touch you again. You know? Or, you know, you can really be on the case of the teacher and say, it's not my kid's fault. It's your fault he's not doing well. You should be tutoring him during recess, doing whatever you can to help him succeed. You see what I'm talking about? There's this way that we can approach life that in one sense we say we follow Christ, but everything truthfully actually revolves around our own agenda. And part of why we're saved by God is so that we can once again become his representatives in his creation to live out his purposes in our life. How different might it look for a parent when he sees his child or her child struggling in school or being picked on by other kids, saying, what is God's agenda here? What might God be trying to do in the heart of my child? And how might I parent this child differently in light of that? Are you idolizing your family? Or have you presented your family as an offering to God to be used for his glory? You know, I, I got an email this other, just uh, last week from one of my closest friends. And in that email, he said, you know, for the sake of accountability, I just wanted to let you give you an update on what's going on in my life, and I think I'm headed toward a pretty hard decision here. And that email has been burning in my heart for over a week now. 
And I'm going to get on the phone with this friend next week. And this whole time, I've just been praying, saying, God, what do you want me to share with him when I get on the phone with him this coming week? Because there is this natural instinct as one of his best friends to protect him and want to just comfort him and say everything that I think would be a good friend. But on this other side, I'm thinking, might I actually have to say some tough things to him that he may not initially want to hear from me as he's disclosed this thing about his life. And it's been weighing me very heavily. But I think this is the the picture of what God intends for us to be used as his instruments for his design and his purposes. God, what is your agenda? What is it you are doing in my world, in my life, in my workplace, in my family that I can partner with you in? 1 Corinthians 3, verse 11 to 13. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. See what God is saying? He's saying, this agenda of mine for my kingdom is going to be the basis on which the weight of your entire life will be weighed. Are you building with straw and stubble and hay that's all going to go up in the flames? Or are you building on the foundation of Jesus because there is only one foundation that is going to last that test? It is the foundation begun by Jesus. And are you building on that foundation for your life? in your career, in your family, in every pursuit? Are you building a life of eternal value on the foundation of Jesus? Or are you building your own edifice to your own glory for your own purposes? The creation account goes on in Genesis 3 with the fall of man as Adam and Eve eat of the forbidden fruit. And as a result of that, sin enters our creation. And it mars everything. And with sin comes death. And in Genesis chapter 3, verse 17 to 19, we find these words. And to Adam, he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. You see, after Adam and Eve sinned by eating this forbidden fruit, God places a curse on the ground so that it will never yield its fruit easily anymore. Now, this curse isn't only a challenge of agriculture, but it's the struggle that all of us must face in fulfilling this calling of God to represent him in his creation. That calling still stands. We are still called to represent God in creation, but what God says is because of this earth, because of this curse on the earth, that work is not going to be easy anymore. It's going to be hard. You're going to struggle all the time. You're going to be fighting and fighting. But because of the brokenness of the world you now occupy, 
because of this curse, everything is going to be tough. You're going to face challenges everywhere you go. Nothing will be easy. Things will fall apart. Now, I want to say this. Although the brokenness of our world is a result of a curse, I'm going to argue it's also God's blessing in disguise. Because I think through that curse, God was sending a message to Adam and Eve saying this. When everything goes easy in your life, what happened? You became proud and you showed that you didn't need me and you rebelled. And so in a way, what God may have been saying to Adam is this, is you need life to be difficult because through that difficulty, you must learn how to depend on me, how to follow me, and trust in me. Because when life is too easy, just like Adam and Eve, even for us, we don't really feel very much need for God, do we? When everything is going your way, why do you need him? But God, in a way, is saying, you need this brokenness to teach you how to trust in me for everything in your life. We need things to be difficult because in the process of facing these challenges, we are humbled and have to learn how to depend on God. 1975, um, there was this interesting concert that was supposed to take place. This jazz pianist, uh, pianist named uh, Keith Jarrett was invited to perform an improvisational jazz concert in the Opera House in Cologne in Germany. But it was a train wreck because the promoter of this event was this 17-year-old teenage girl, <laughs> believe it or not, and she was way out of her depth trying to be a promoter to this event. Around that time of the concert in January, Jarrett was doing this tour throughout Europe. And he was having incredible difficulty sleeping at night. He was struggling with insomnia. And he was having horrible back pain. Not only that, but the concert for that night was scheduled to start at 11.30 p.m. <laughs> because there was actually an opera earlier that day. So that was the only slot that this girl could book for him. So, so the concert is almost supposed to start at midnight. On top of that, Jared gave very specific instructions for the kind of piano that he wanted for the concert. It was sort of, a lot of people consider it the Rolls Royce of grand pianos. But she didn't quite understand what he was asking for. So she put out there this baby grand piano that was actually meant only for rehearsals. And so there were major sound and tuning issues with this baby grand. So three hours before the concert, Jared has access to this piano. And he tries it out, and it's horrible. It's totally out of tune. Um, the black keys stuck. <laughs> and the pedals didn't work. So he looks at this ridiculous piano that he's been asked to play as a world-famous jazz pianist. And he basically tells the promoter, promoter, this is ridiculous. I'm not doing the concert. Just cancel it. 
The promoter begged him, please, please, please. 1,400 people have already bought tickets and they're coming here in a couple hours. Don't do this to me. Please, please, please play the concert. And so grudgingly, he agreed to let the concert go on. He actually told his producer that traveled wherever he went to record the concert. And he did it because he was sure it was going to be a disaster. And he wanted evidence. (laughs) He wanted a recording that he could use as a lesson to other promoters of what not to do, okay? But instead of a disaster, that night, Jarrett produced a masterpiece. The upper registers of the piano were so tinny and harsh, he didn't even touch them. And the lower bass registers were so muddled and weak that he barely played them either. So he did this improvisation almost entirely in the middle register. The piano was giving him such a hard time that Eyewitnesses of that concert say at a number of occasions he literally stood up to pound the keys (laughs) to get the sound he wanted. On the recording, you can actually audibly hear Jarrett moaning at times because he is so frustrated with his keyboard. But here's the amazing thing. By wrestling with these challenges, something great was created that night. That recording of that concert would go on to sell over three and a half million records. And it became, to this day, the best-selling solo jazz album ever made in history. And it also went on to become the all-time best-selling piano album ever produced. That concert with that piano. Why am I sharing this story with you? I think this. I think like Keith Jarrett, our natural instinct is to do whatever we can do to get out of difficult situations. I think for many of us, we live in this constant state of dissatisfaction with our current conditions in life. If only I could find a better job. If only my wife or my husband were more supportive. If only my kids would listen to me. If only I had better friends. If only I could find a better church. If only we had a little more money. I want to say this. God's will for your life isn't to remove every challenge or difficulty that you face or to fix every problem so that you could have an easier life. In fact, I'm going to argue that God intends that much of our calling to represent his rule in his creation is to be lived out in broken places, in broken marriages, in broken workplaces and companies, in broken neighborhoods and school districts. After all, Where is God's presence needed if not in situations where people are hurting and lost and most desperate? Matthew 5, 14 to 16 says, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket. 
but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. He describes us as a city on a hill, as a light in places of darkness. So that's what my followers are supposed to represent in my creation. Where is light needed if not in places of darkness? Paul has this interesting teaching in his first letter to the Corinthian church where he talks to slaves. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 17 and 20 to 22, he says, Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freed man of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. Paul isn't condoning slavery here. In fact, he tells slaves, listen, if the opportunity presents itself, take it, get free. But what he says at the same time is to these slaves, Trying to secure your freedom isn't the highest priority as a follower of Jesus, as crazy as that sounds. But he's saying that even in the difficult circumstances of your slavery, there is still a calling of God on your life that is valid and real and is ordained for a purpose that you may not fully understand right now. This is not an easy teaching. Look at what he says to wives. 1 Peter chapter 3, 1-2, Peter says, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some who do, do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Gosh. Taken the wrong way, this seems to enforce some of our worst fears about the Bible, doesn't it? It just subjugates women. It condones slavery. But saying, man, you may have a husband that's just a real horrible person. He doesn't live a life that pleases God. And the truth is you may receive the brunt of that in the way he treats you. And there's no talk about rights, time's up, or any of this. And not that these things are not valid. There is a place in the church, I think, to fight for the rights of women. That is not something I'm going to challenge or speak against. But I think this is speaking at another level of saying, even in that incredibly difficult situation in that difficult marriage with that difficult spouse, there may be something greater that God wants to accomplish through you and your spirit of surrender, of saying, Lord, this is so painful for me personally. And I want to do everything in my power to get out from under this horrible situation. But God, is there a way that you want to use me as a light in this darkness, in this incredibly painful and difficult situation? Dallas Willard says, we must accept the circumstances we constantly find ourselves in as the place of God's kingdom and blessing. God has yet to bless anyone except where they actually are. 
And if we faithlessly discard situation after situation, moment after moment, as not being, quote, right, we will simply have no place to receive his kingdom into our life. For those situations and moments are our life. I think there's such an escapist tendency we have, right, of feeling like it's always the circumstances that's the problem. If only things could just line themselves up and go my way, then man, I just feel like I would really have a shot at this and can live the life that God wants for me. But as Willard says here, you know, there is no other life than the one you've been given. And you can kind of go through all of life complaining about the circumstances. Or you could recognize that it's in the very circumstances that you are facing right now that God desires to do the greatest work in your life and accomplish his greatest purpose through you. It's just that there needs to be a willing servant on our end, isn't there? (laughs) There has to be a surrender. There has to be a place of faith. This is God, use me in that way. Use me to change this horrible company in which everyone is stepping on each other and hurting each other. Use me in this broken marriage where it feels like we're just always at each other's throats. Use me to shepherd this child's heart that I see is going astray and is so lost. What is your agenda, God? What do you want to do through me? I want to say that this is not an easy teaching. I think many of you can probably have a sentiment of, wow, it would <laughs> sounds great in a sermon. I don't have the strength to be that person. Truth is, I always tend to just react to what's in front of me. And if people are going to get nasty, I'm going to get nasty back. Someone hits me on the cheek, I don't turn the other cheek. I slap their cheek. How, how do I become this person that's embracing everything as an opportunity used by God? And that's why I just want to close with just a, a, a brief final point. It's interesting that in the New Testament, the New Testament writers pick up this theme of the image of God and they apply it to followers of Jesus, to Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, it says this. And we all with unveiled faces, face beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, that's the same word, image, from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. There is this interesting theme in both the Old Testament and the New Testament that basically says, we become what we worship. We become what we worship. We resemble what we worship in our lives. Psalm 115, verse 4 to 8 says, Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. Whatever you are gazing intently at in your life, 
is what you're going to start resembling. And so I want to ask you that question as I close up this message today. What do you intently gaze at the majority of your life? Because I think, truth be told, for most of us, it's not the face of Jesus. There is no way you can drown yourself in social media, constantly checking how many likes you got on your most recent post on Instagram, and drowning yourself in marathon sessions of Netflix or whatever else you entertain yourself with. And somehow think that this Christ-likeness is just going to exude from you naturally in the moment when you need it. And so I want to ask you, what are you gazing at most of your life? I want to say this. A starving soul is in no condition to be used by God to be a help in any situation of brokenness. Do you hear that? A soul that is starving and disconnected from God is in no place to be used by him to help others in their own brokenness. If you look at that passage that I just showed, 2 Corinthians 3.18, you could advance the slide there. Go back one. It says there, we become more like Jesus by gazing at his face, beholding him more and more in our lives. And then he says, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. We've been talking about that a lot in the Surrendered series, of the critical role of the Holy Spirit to bring to us in our hearts a place of cherishing Christ more than we cherish anything in this world. And I want to invite you to that, is to embrace what the promise of this verse holds out to us. That the more time we spend looking to Jesus, immersing ourselves in prayer, and his word and inviting that work of the spirit to reveal Christ to us, the more our spirit is going to be strengthened to be able to reflect that image of Christ in the world that we are called to. You know, I'll say this. A few weeks back, when I'm getting ready in the morning, I'm in the bathroom for a good half hour or something like that, doing, you know, whatever business, and uh, um, I have a little Bluetooth speaker in there. And the truth is, I've had a habit for quite a long time that while I'm getting ready in the morning, I just listen to podcasts all the time. And so I'm just listening to all kinds of crazy stories and this and that or news or some silly comedian or something like that. But in the last few weeks, I've actually been just listening to the Bible through that Bluetooth speaker. I've just been listening to the life of David over and over again on loop, trying to get ready for that Life of David preaching series. And even as your pastor, I've got to confess, it's made a difference in just my whole attitude as I'm driving to work that morning. Just immersed in scripture and where my heart is naturally. One thing I found is in my commute to the morning, I find myself actually praying more as I'm driving into work because I'm just so filled with the word of God in my heart. And I'm thinking God thoughts constantly 
What does God want to do this day? And so I find myself attacking the day with a very different mindset. First Corinthians 15, 59 says, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, speaking of Adam, Paul says, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven, who is Jesus. That is my sincere hope for my life and for yours. Let's pray. As we uh, close out this surrendered series, just want to invite you to a moment of prayer before God. Just uh, come before Him and maybe just, uh, if I could invite you to a prayer of surrender. Maybe as you're hearing the message today, in some ways, maybe you can identify with some of the things that I've shared of how so often we, we, we can so easily gripe about circumstances and it seems like the truth is, even though we say we follow Jesus, you know, what it amounts to is just the thinly veiled American dream of just, gosh, you know, we, we've got our own agenda. We, we, we don't even think to ask, what does God want to do in this situation? We're just so consumed with what we want out of the situation. And so we try to manipulate people in our lives. We try to get our way. We're filled with fears or anger or bitterness. And I want us to see this bigger picture of what God is doing when he saves us. It's just not just that he's trying to transplant people who are headed to hell and get them to heaven when they die. What he is after is the restoration of our whole being. Yes, it includes going to heaven when we die, but it involves so much more than that, that even in this life, he's declaring that he reigns as king over his creation. And he invites us to surrender ourselves to his authority to say, God, let your leadership rule over my life. Let your peace and your joy, your love, rest on me. And as I gaze on the face of Jesus. May I too be used as an instrument of your glory so that I can represent your agenda in even the most broken situations that I find myself. So that I could be a loving spouse, a loving parent. I could be a loving coworker, a loving neighbor, a loving friend. And in that love, to be always asking God, what are you wanting to do in this situation. How do you want to use me to declare your glory in this place? Would you just pray that for just a couple minutes and our worship team will come and lead us in a time of response.